Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Captain Jack Andrews. Jack, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Captain Jack Andrews. Jack, thank you very much for coming on. Jake, thank you for having me. So Jack, I get a lot of requests about the US sports betting market and it's it's always fun chatting to, to Americans about their perspective on sports betting. So before we get stuck into some more details about that, do you want to tell us about some of your experience and what you've done over the last few years and decades in this area? I've been betting sports actively now for, I would say, uh, about 15 years and very seriously over the past five or six years. And before uh, this year, that was largely done through either taking a trip out to Las Vegas or betting online or uh, more frequently, actually recently, would be betting with an agent, uh, a credit shop, uh, you know, where you you uh, settle up with an agent at, at a certain point. And uh, I've had some good experiences and I've had some bad experiences. I had a sports book take me for $45,000. Um, they just never paid me. Uh, I've had uh, situations where I've I've won a lot and I could play to my heart's content because they were willing to take the action. Uh, so once legalization actually came about in the United States uh, this year, uh, that kind of the landscape changed for me. I live in New Jersey and uh, New Jersey was one of the first states to act on uh, the legalization of sports betting. Uh, they, they passed their regulations and uh, that market has been since Late June, uh, it's been thriving, uh, and I've found that I place very few wagers in so-called black markets anymore. Um, it's it's just much easier and much more secure to place it with the legal bookmakers here in the state. So it sounds like legalization and, and regulated sports betting is very positive from your perspective in terms of a professional sports better. So far, it has been, and I, you know, I always didn't feel this way either. When it when it was kind of about to take place, I felt like this could really be a bad thing for a sports better. I, I felt like the entire market would be dominated by one or two large corporations who would control the pricing. Uh, if they wanted to create pricing that was um, much more uh, disadvantaged to the consumer, they could do so because they had, uh, you know, kind of a, a close control of the market. Um, but in fact, actually, there's been a fair amount of competition in my state, uh, which has led to a fair amount of uh, competitive pricing. There's been a lot of promotions. Uh, you know, the players that we have in the state of New Jersey, we have um, 
Betfair Patty Power, um, which they've been very creative with their promotions in the state. Um, we have DraftKings, which is uh, this is their first foray into sports betting, uh, and they're actually run by Canby Sports. Um, at least their their uh, risk management is run by Canby Sports out of Europe. Uh, we have William Hill, of course, who has a presence in Nevada, and they've been probably the most active uh, U.S. company, the WilliamHill.us, most active in kind of uh, transitioning into these new states as they come online. Um, and then, of course, we have some of the Nevada players. We have MGM, we have Caesars, uh, and they've kind of just ported over what they offer in Nevada to the market in New Jersey as well. So what's life going to be like for a professional sports better in the U.S. now? Is it going to be largely the same, or are we going to have people from you know, your contemporaries in Pennsylvania potentially moving to New Jersey, or others in Mississippi who don't like the offering down there might have to move to a, another state? What, what do you expect to happen? So, Jake, that's actually, that's actually an important point there, because this is a huge wild card at this point, because the way the regulation or, you know, the, the regulation has come down from the Supreme Court is states are free to make their own laws regarding sports betting. And it's really up to the 50 individual states plus the District of Columbia uh, to regulate sports betting, and they can do it as they see fit. So, for instance, I've been lucky so far that I'm in a state that has a fair amount of competition and has uh, a low tax rate for the sports books that will enable them to kind of get in the game uh, but there are other states that have kind of taken a different approach. Um, Delaware, for instance, they you just have one option in Delaware. Uh, you have William Hill is basically the risk manager for Delaware. Um, sports betting is run through the lottery there. And if you don't like those prices, well, there's nobody else in town. Uh, there's no mobile betting. There's no Internet betting. Uh, you'd, you'd have to drive over to New Jersey to get some variety. Uh, so as each of these states come online, it's a little bit different each time. Um, you know, one of the neighbors of Delaware is West Virginia, and that in West Virginia, it's also the lottery in charge of sports betting. But they've taken a different approach. They've decided they want competition. So in West Virginia, we already have uh, William Hill set up. There's FanDuel is set up there. Uh, there is um, uh, DraftKings is probably going to come online there as an online partner of somebody else. Um, so there's there's variety. Uh, Mississippi, there's there's I think there's 23 different casinos in the state of Mississippi. Uh, and what we've seen so far with them is a lot of them have reached out and just gone with an established partner. In this case, it's been William Hill as the majority so far. But they've uh, been proactive in trying to, to, to spring up sports books in their casinos because they know the public wants to bet on things. So where is it going to go from here? I don't really know. Um, there's going to be some state that's going to be super for sports betting uh, from the better's perspective. And then there's going to be some states that are super for sports betting from the corporate perspective, from the books perspective. Uh, and then there's going to be some states that it just never happens. Uh, they're just not going to see the need to have sports betting. And uh, it, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. So for those that aren't aware, take us through the current setup or the expected setup anyway in the U.S., you talk about these online operators are going to have to partner with a casino. Just just run us through how that works because it is a little bit different to what others might expect in, in other parts of the world. Right. So since it's a state-by-state -state regulation, what we're seeing is that a lot of the states want to protect their existing uh, casino operations, um, 
you know, what, how, however they may have it. Some states really rely on uh, casino tourism. Other states, it's just kind of a, a side benefit for the residents. And what we're seeing so far is that a lot of states require you to, uh, if you want to have sports betting, you need to have a physical casino. And uh, once you have a physical casino and you have that license, you can then have um, some some dance partners, so to speak. Uh, and these dance partners are the online uh, side of things. So, uh, for instance, in Atlantic City, one of the smaller casinos is Resorts. And Resorts has been very proactive in finding dance partners. And they've partnered with DraftKings. They've partnered with BetStars, which is the, the betting arm of PokerStars. Um, they also have partnered with SB Tech out of Europe. Uh, so they have three different uh three different entities that are facing out to the consumer that all are tied back to the resort's license. Now, meanwhile, in some other states, it might not be that easy. Uh, for instance, in Pennsylvania, they're only going to be allowed to have one online brand per casino, and it actually has to be the same brand name as the casino. So while they have had uh, companies like... Um, FanDuel and BetStars have already partnered up with some of the casinos in Pennsylvania. They're going to need to have an online brand that is the same as that physical casino in Pennsylvania, and they can only have one dance partner. So it'll be interesting to see how other states handle this, uh, because as you know, and as probably uh, your, your audience knows, a lot of the future of sports betting is in either mobile app or online betting, uh, the physical betting is, you know, slowly going to decrease as years go on and people find the convenience of online betting. So one topic that comes up relatively regularly in the U.S. is the idea of a sports book shading its lines in different states. If you're talking about New Jersey and the Jets or the Giants are playing at MetLife versus a team from the West Coast, they might have different odds in that state versus in Nevada or another state. Do you think that's going to happen? And how do you think that'll sort of play out in the U.S.? So far, we have not seen that happen. Uh, we have not seen any regional bias when it comes to sports betting lines. I've talked to a few uh, executives at different sports betting companies here, and they all kind of take the same approach. They're only going to do it if they absolutely have to do it. They, they don't want to do it as a proactive measure. Uh, it'll be more of a reactive measure. That said, the, the risk management pools of a lot of these companies uh, that are getting involved in the legalized states are massive to begin with. So they shouldn't need to worry about one-sided action in New Jersey because they probably also have an outlet in Nevada or overseas that might have more balanced action or might even have the other side of, of the coin. I don't really think that we're going to see it much. Uh, if we see it at all in the United States, it'll probably be with college sports where there's a lot more of a, a regional fervor to the sport itself, um, like football down south. Uh, but so far we haven't, uh, and we're already nearly two months into the college football season in the U.S., and the casinos in Mississippi really haven't shown any kind of regional bias towards those local teams. Do you think you as a professional sports better or others out there might need agent networks, for want of a better word, throughout the different states where they can have different options? And if we're talking about 
you know, local books in Mississippi or, or other books in different states where you don't want to get in a car and drive many, many hours. Um, do you think that type of thing will start to permeate throughout the U.S. with the different sports books offerings? I think the sports betting syndicates that do exist out there, uh, I, I, I'm a solo better. I, I don't uh, bet with any kind of syndicate. But the syndicates that do exist, I think they're going to take advantage of those sort of things, uh, having someone that can post up in uh, Mississippi and New Jersey and uh, you know Nevada and get down on the lines there. Um, I think that's just a natural uh, market efficiency that'll, that'll happen when it comes to people that operate that way. Have you been banned yet from any sports books? Uh, I haven't been banned, and and interestingly enough, in New Jersey, um, there was a a lawsuit filed in nineteen well filed in nineteen eighty one. It was resolved in nineteen eighty two. It's the famous Ken Houston versus Resorts Casino, and what that was is uh, Ken Houston was a famous card counter, and he uh, was uh, prevented from playing in the casino, and he sued on the grounds that. Uh, you know, using skill to beat a casino should be allowed. And uh, he he won the case on a technicality, and the technicality is that uh, only the New Jersey Casino Control Commission is allowed to dictate who can play and who cannot play a game. So casinos aren't allowed to ban players in New Jersey based on skill. Um, you have to commit a crime of some kind or, or something like that to to be banned by the casino. That was a long way of saying that I haven't been banned. However, I've been countermeasured. Uh, I have been playing at DraftKings for, uh, since they started in the state at the beginning of August. And, uh, just in the past two weeks or so, my, my betting limits have been severely cut. Uh, I'm down to, uh, you know, I can bet $30 on any kind of derivative bet. Um, I bet a NBA total the other day on the day of the game. Uh, and I tried to just see if I could bet 500 and they would only accept 250 for the, for the wager. Um, I know some other players uh, that have have run into the same thing so far. So it'll be interesting to see how DraftKings handles that. They're going to get a lot of negative press. Um, one, of the, one of the things that's different from the American market uh, from a lot of the European market, and I think some of these European companies are going to have to come to understand this, is there's a very American way of looking at gambling, and that is you got to let me try to beat you. Um, you know, Americans don't like to think that the odds are so stacked against them that, you know, they, they can't possibly win. Um, we see that in a, a difference in American casinos versus European casinos. Um, European casinos pretty much don't allow you to win. Um, things like card counting is illegal, not just frowned upon. Uh, and so it's kind of a very un-American thing to offer a wager and then when somebody tries to, you know, accept that wager and, and make a bet, you say, oh, no, I'm only willing to take a small pittance of what you actually want to wager on it. Um, that's not going to fly too well around uh, many parts in the United States. So it'll be interesting to see how these European co companies deal with that and whether they just hold firm to the way they've been operating for years and years or if they bend a little um, to, the, to the U.S. market as, you know, a, a concession, so to speak. Do you think there will be sort of a meaningful impact from sort of this angle in terms of banning winners? Because you've been doing this a long time. You'd know more than most that around the world it's it's very, very difficult, um, certainly in regulated jurisdictions outside of the U.S. 
they've sort of had their own way. And, and I've heard people talk about it's un-American to ban someone just because they're winning and things like that. So do you think it'll continue along the same sort of discussion point or do you think it'll be sort of drowned out eventually as we have more states, more recreational bettors, more happy sports bettors betting uh, in their state and this will just become something that sort of gets left behind? It'll be interesting in the sense of how heavy-handed will they be with their limitations. You know, one of the complaints about a lot of the companies in the UK is they ban people that aren't even really winners. They're just, they got lucky. They made a bet on a uh, a long shot horse and now they, you know, the, the race book there thinks they're uh, a winning, a winning better. Um, if they, if they make that sort of heavy handed approach towards the United States market, I think they will face a lot of um, kickback in terms of uh, betting sediment. And if there is enough competition where people say, well, hey, look, I'll just go over to XYZ book because they don't have a reputation for kicking out, you know, lucky players. Um, I, I think it'll I think it'll make an impact. It's you know, it's really tough to say, Jay, because I, I can go either way on that argument, because I know I've seen it for years now that um, you're kind of shouting into the wind when you try to fight against, uh, you know, being limited for just being a sharp better. Um, you know, and hopefully there'll be other options in the United States, such as like exchange betting down the line where, you know, we don't have to worry about, um, you know, what the sports books do to sharp players. Yeah, the exchange is, is an interesting topic we'll get to in a minute. On this sort of same line, this palpable error rule that most people are aware of, we saw an example in New Jersey recently with, I believe it was FanDuel, one of the payouts was about 80000 on a $100 bet or something in that range. Same sort of question. Do you think this type of typical, what people are calling European style of bookmaking where the, the palpable error, error rule applies will transfer over to the US? Because we saw in that instance the, the book had to pay out the winnings and it sort of set a precedent in you know from a legal perspective. It, it's sort of like a case law example of well, this happened already and this was the outcome. What do you think the expectation will be moving forward? Well, I think the precedent that it's set and the, and the, the more imp- important precedent that it's set is that in a regulated market, it's not for the sports book nor for the better to decide the result of that dispute. Uh, you know, And that's really one of the benefits that sports bettors in the United States can look for in a regulated environment is there's going to be a third party uh, that you can go to and say – Here's my case, and I believe I should be paid. And uh, you know, in that case, it, it came out later that it looked like uh, the New Jersey Department of Gaming Enfor- Enforcement had been leaning on FanDuel to go ahead and pay the wager. And, and what FanDuel did is they kind of took a preemptive step there before any kind of ruling came down and said, you know, okay, you got us this time. Going forward, you know, that's this isn't something we want to do, but we're going to pay this out. Uh, you know, as as kind of a good publicity stunt, which, you know, that that is the the right move for them to do in terms of the publicity, uh, because it was getting a lot of negative press. Um, but but again, the important part is we shouldn't have to have um, a sports book determine what is palpable and what is not palpable. We should have a third party, and in these regulated states, we now have that opportunity. Uh, so that they can say, and it, and it shouldn't really be based on the amount wagered or the the even the how erroneous the line is. It's 
you know, was proper procedure followed? And in the case of FanDuel, you know, there was a teller that punched that into a computer and a teller that looked at a, a ticket that now read 100 to pay $82,000 and handed it over to the customer as if like, well, that's that's fine by me. Um, they also had nearly a dozen players online who bet that. And there's a seven-second delay on FanDuel. So there was seven seconds there where somebody wasn't paying attention to confirming bets or you know monitoring live action coming in where it could have been um, – it could have been canceled, and it wasn't. So there were a lot of steps along the way there that FanDuel kind of dropped the ball. Um, and you need to kind of weigh that when it comes to being palpable. Who's it's, it's palpable versus culpable. And in that case, I think FanDuel was culpable about the error. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So let's move on to the <laughs> the wire act and sort of exchange betting. Do you want to run us through some of the challenges that exist now in terms of um, sports betting exchanges? And most people know the likes of Betfair and, and Smarkets and BetDAC and Matchbook and these type of offerings. Tell us what you expect sort of in the short term with respect to that. Currently, there is no betting exchange in the United States. Um, no, you know, none that's been kind of regulated by any of the new states here. The knock on Nevada has always been, uh, there, you know, there's only like a, a million, two million people that live in the entire state of Nevada. Everyone that's betting in Nevada is a tourist that comes through. So to set up an exchange in Nevada would be really tough because you'd suffer from low liquidity. Um, but now that you have these other states kind of coming online that have a bigger population, you now have a chance for possibly shared liquidity. Uh, now, the, the Wire Act of 1961, which was passed during the Kennedy administration, uh, basically prohibits the sharing of illegal gambling information across state lines. It was meant to stop uh, you know, illegal bookmaking and things like that going on across state lines. It does have a, a safe harbor provision in it that says if there's two jurisdictions where gambling is both legal and at the same form of gambling is legal, you can then transmit information across the state lines to each other. Well, what that means is we could possibly have liquidity pools that are shared across state lines. This would be a huge improvement for uh, sports betting, especially for exchanges. Um, in fact, I've seen a kind of one interpretation saying that that safe harbor provision carries not only to other states in the United States, but also overseas. So there could actually be uh, liquidity pool sharing across to international pools and some of those larger players from Europe uh, would benefit greatly from that. Um, will we see an exchange in the U.S.? I think inevitably we will. It'll be... The hardest part about an exchange breaking into the U.S. will be the recreational better understanding it all. Uh, sports betting exchanges act like an efficient market, uh, but it's not quite the same market that a lot of um, recreational bettors are used to. And you're going to need to educate those bettors and educate the public and kind of own a lot of that uh, verbiage around a betting exchange in order for it to, to work well. Uh, I look forward to the day when there's a sports betting market. Even if I'm 
in doing so, I'm betting against sharp players because, honestly, that's who's going to live on those betting exchanges are the sharp bettors. But if I'm only paying 1% to 2% commission, uh, that's that's a far better deal for me, and I can you know, go against uh, sharper competition in order to uh, save money. Uh, it's, it's sort of that, that uh, you know, uh, low margin, high volume type of uh, thinking that uh, you've talked about on past episodes. Um, I think it'll work out well for the United States. Um, and it'll be interesting to see who takes the first step in getting one going. Um, there's probably not room for a lot of uh, exchanges in the U.S., but if there could be some kind of consolidation or joint venture um, into the United States by one of the beer companies, it could really be a, a, a market changer. Do you think there's any possibility of a Amazon or a Google or a JP Morgan or a, you know the CME in Chicago, for example, getting involved in this space? Or do you think it's going to be limited to the existing international sports betting exchanges that we're all aware of? Yeah, that's a really good point, Jake, is I think the ideal company to get involved in an exchange in the United States is a company that doesn't want to dirty their hands with bookmaking, a company that wants to kind of get involved in the whole gambling aspect or the, and this, this wave of money that's sweeping over the country, but doesn't want to get their hands dirty. And that could be somebody like a Google um, or uh, you know a, a large financial company. It could also be one of the sports leagues. You know, as much as they hate gambling, the NFL is actually very nicely set up to run an exchange. Um, they run a the NFL ticket exchange in the United States where you can buy tickets on the secondary market. And that was basically done so that scalpers couldn't get the premium amounts that they wanted to selling it on the streets. And now the NFL gets a gets a cut of the of the ticket prices. But the, the reason it, it, it works out nicely for the NFL is there is a set number of games in a year in the NFL, and there's there's never more or less. Um, you know, if the NBA were to set up a betting exchange, then they benefit if a game goes the full, if a playoff series goes the full seven games. And that would, you know, that wouldn't sit well with the public. And so they would worry that, you know, when a, a team is up one, in a series three games to one, well, it's in the NBA's interest to have betting go all the way through games six and seven. So they're going to, you know, rig the game in some way. It wouldn't happen, but it would be a suspicion. But the NFL, there is no chance for an extra game to be played. There's, you know, the wild card round, the divisional round, the conference round, and the Super Bowl, and that's it. And uh, so the NFL could really could really benefit if they were to ever set up a uh, sports betting exchange. They won't, but um, they're the ideal scenario for it. Just a quick question on DFS. I don't know if you've had too much to do with it, but do you think DFS, or what's the trajectory now for Daily Fantasy and, and some of these companies are obviously already involved in sports betting uh, in the U.S. Do you think DFS is... I'm trying to think of another example globally that's similar to DFS where it was the incumbent and now you've got sports betting coming in and whether or not it will have its place moving forward or eventually it just won't exist one day. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the 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 analogy I would go to is, uh, you know, 20 years ago, bingo halls were big in the United States on Indian tribal land. And then uh, the tribes were allowed to start negotiating compacts and get full casino gaming uh, in some form or another. And, you know, nobody plays bingo anymore in these bingo halls anymore in, in the United States. Um, 
will DFS suffer the same fate? Uh, probably. Um, you know, but there's also a chance there's like a hybrid of DFS and sports betting. You know, DFS has always kind of taken a, a high road where they claim not to be gambling, but you're actually gambling. They could kind of work out a thing where, you know, maybe it's less about, uh, you know, this this peer-to-peer uh, betting, and it's more about, um, you know, single game situations and single player performance and things like that. Um, and I, I think FanDuel and DraftKings, you know, they recognize this all along. It's it's clear now that their plan had been to ramp towards sports betting as soon as it was legalized. Um, I don't know if Yahoo Sports, uh, Yahoo's uh, DFS product is going to survive and some of the other smaller players seem to be willing to be gobbled up at this point. Um, but it, it'll, it'll remain to be seen what happens there with, with DFS in a, in a full sports betting environment. So what are your long-term expectations for sports betting in the U.S.? And looking ahead sort of three, five, seven years, do you think that every citizen living in the U.S. will be able to bet sports on a Sunday or or March Madness will be very easy to place a bet on your mobile phone? Or do you think there will be challenges or or unknown hurdles down the road that might impact how easy it is uh, for sports betting moving forward? That's that's a good question. you know, here's the thing. I was actually just looking at the September numbers for uh, the five states that had legalized betting. And uh, the sum total of, of amount wagered across those five states in legal markets was about $818 million. And within, I would say, the next three months, we're going to pass the billion-dollar handle in one month in the United States. Now, the the knock has always been that sports betting is largely in a black market, so we don't know how big the market is in the United States. But the estimate has always been around $100 to $150 billion are wagered annually on sports betting in the U.S. Uh, if, if we can, after one year uh, of having legalized betting, so like next summer, next June, July, if, if we have surpassed a sum total of 12 to 15 billion dollars total in in wagers that's that's fairly significant uh, you know in such a new industry you know having to move money from the black market to the into the light uh, that would be fairly significant i think by this time next year we're going to be at seven maybe nine more states that'll have legalized betting and we will have uh probably about a two billion dollar handle per month uh, nationwide. Um, and then one year after that, I'd say we will probably be up to closing in on our saturation point for now. It'll probably be up near 20 states. And we'd probably be up to a, a 3 to $4 billion handle per month. So I would say in, in three years' time, roughly half of the money that is being wagered on sports betting in the United States will be wagered in legal uh, environments. And I think that's actually fairly successful. And I don't, I don't think we'll ever get to 100% uh, because there's always going to be states that just don't want sports betting. But I do think we're going to get to a point where there are enough states that have sports betting uh, that if you wanted to place a bet, you, you know how to, to place a legal bet, whether it's you know betting through a friend that lives in that state or 
um, you know, driving over a bridge to get to a different state, um, you'll be able to place a bet if you want to. And what do you think the market would look like without the Wire Act hanging over sportsbook operators in terms of things going across state lines? Do you think it could be a US-wide national platform for the likes of DraftKings and every other sportsbook out there that wants to offer sports betting? You know, that would be interesting. If they could figure out a carve-out to get around the Wire Act, uh, that would be very interesting. Um, That would be potentially huge. It would also... In a way, uh, there's a, a lot of states that probably wouldn't want that because a lot of their uh, their state market would go elsewhere. You know, some of these states where you only have one option to bet, uh, they would see a, a big decrease if they, um, if you know, if the average citizen could bet anywhere they wanted to on their phone. So, you know, some of these states would have to rethink their model of of regulating sports betting in that situation. International sports books looking at the U.S. and we've seen a lot of them head over already, but if there was one out there that was looking at coming over. What advice would you have for them? Uh, my advice would be that the the U.S. market is different than the European market. That should be in their minds ahead of time. They need to recognize that. Uh, I I don't think there is an easy way to adjust to the U.S. market other than to play by the same rules and methods that the Las Vegas casinos have been doing all these years. In other words. Minus 110 per side is just about the maximum that you're going to need. You're going to be allowed to offer and and not create a stir. You know, if anything, you know, if you can if you can try to lower your margins even more and offer, you know, a minus 108 or a minus 107, that you know that would go a long way. And I'm not saying that because that's what I'd like to bet into. I'm just saying that because that's what the American consumer is used to. And while We've seen in other casino games that the American, American casino consumer sorry, uh, is willing to get the worst of it sometimes. The, the pricing is going to be a little bit more obvious to them. Uh, they're you know, they're going to say, you know, I'm, I don't want to pay 15 to win 10 when I can pay 11 to win 10 over here. Uh, and I, I think, you know, for now, the culture of the American better um, – dictates that minus 110 is about the maximum uh, that they're going to be, you know, willing to pay that, you know, that five, five and a half percent big tops. What advice would you have for U.S. professional sports leagues? They, they really need to wake up and see all the money that's headed their way. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, you know, when, when sports betting passed, uh, the Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban said that, uh, his franchise is now worth like $500 million more than it was worth yesterday. Um, he recognizes it. You know, there's other owners, um, Ted Leonsis of uh, Washington. He owns the Washington Capitals hockey team, Washington Wizards basketball team. He owns a couple uh, arena football league teams. He recognizes it because he's pushing for Washington, D.C. to pass sports betting, legalized sports betting, and Washington, D.C. doesn't have any casinos. What they do have is they have an arena that he has teams that play in, and he wants to be able to have in-arena betting on his games. He wants people to be you know, sitting in the arena watching the game with their phone and making a bet on what's going to happen next. Um, he sees that possibility. We've seen the NBA and the NHL both team up with MGM Resorts uh, to offer kind of a, uh, a partner in terms of sports betting data. And it looks like the NHL is actually going to open up some of their advanced media that they 
they don't share to the public and offer that to MGM so that MGM can offer um, some in-game betting based on that data. Well, it remains to be seen what exactly that means, but that could be a game changer. You know, we have some new football leagues that are coming out in the U.S. this year. Uh, there's uh, the um, XFL is coming back, and there's also the American uh, Football League or something like that. I always get that acronym wrong. But anyway, they're coming out in February and March. It would be very advantageous for them to team up with sports betting and make their product very sports betting friendly. Um, it would it would help a great deal towards their popularity because people will watch something they have money on. What about sports betting media outlets? And we've seen, you know, VEASAN, a lot of people know of, the Action Network now, which is a combination of a number of different uh, sports betting sites, let's say. What advice would you have for them? Uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that are trying to cash in on uh, the sports betting wave here in the United States. And for good reason, you know, it's everyone's talking about sports betting everywhere you go. And uh, there's always been a kind of a dearth of actual sports betting content. And then we had VSIN come along and they, they strive to be like a CNBC of sports betting. They, they want to be somewhat neutral, but kind of explain the market to you um, for, for the recreational better. Uh, the action network takes more of an entertainment approach towards it all. Uh, we've seen barstool sports. Uh, they, they take a, kind of a a boys entertainment angle at um, sports betting. Uh, There's various ones. And, and, you know, the thing is you got to tread carefully with a lot of these companies because they they sell you on the entertainment value of it. But there's also a, you know, there's a financial cost to being a sports better if you don't know what you're doing. Um, The VIG is going to just grind you down. Um, You know, it's very tough to beat the VIG when it comes to, betting on just about any sport. And as a result, you know, a lot of these guys are kind of selling you on the entertainment value, but they're not teaching you good bankroll management or good money management or, you know, even kind of just explaining to you, uh, you know, how you should only bet, you know, one or 2% of your bankroll at the most on any given game and things like that. There's, there's, there's currently a gap there for somebody to offer solid, educational sports betting content uh, and not have it be, you know, here's my five locks of the week and, uh, you know, hey, look, here's, you know, here's what, here's the bozo play of the week and, and it just make it a farce. It, there, there's definitely a gap there and, and somebody's going to come along and offer a solid educational content and I'm afraid it's going to be incredibly boring and no one's going to go for it. What about other professional sports bettors? What advice would you have for them if they're not in the U.S. currently and are actively looking at this marketplace? Well, you probably want to wait a little bit longer before you make a a tourism trip to the U.S. just to explore some of the new markets. You know, right now, sports betting is, is kind of spreading like it's a virus, and the virus has kind of started on the East Coast and is spreading West. And And a lot of the emerging states we're going to see coming up next are neighbors of states that already have sports betting. Because, again, casino gambling is largely about convenience. And when people, when states start to see their money crossing over state lines to go somewhere else to spend that money because their neighbor has something that they don't have – they're going to want to have that. And so that's why we're seeing, you know, 
you know, Delaware, New Jersey, West Virginia, but it's spreading to Pennsylvania and New York and Maryland and then to Ohio and Illinois and Indiana and, you know, kind of just spreading westward. So if somebody were to be a, a professional sports better uh, from, so let's say, Europe and they wanted to come over and kind of just tour through some of the sports books, uh, you know, you're probably about a year away from uh, having a solid, like, six to seven state string that you can kind of drive through um, and check out the sports books and, and place your wagers. And what about the general recreational better? What advice would you have for them? So, yeah, the general recreational better, hey, this is there's never been a better time to get into sports betting. You're, you finally don't have to hunt down some bookie or play at some kind of quasi-legal site that you're not even sure if you're going to get paid from. You, you finally have a you know, a good product here in the United States in certain states. And the recreational better really should take this time to kind of learn more about sports betting. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of things out there on the internet that you can learn from. And there's, there's even a ton more that you shouldn't learn from, but you know, there really hasn't been a better time to be a sports better. And I've seen that kind of in the excitement in Atlantic city when I've, when I've been down there, uh, you know, people, that first weekend of the NFL season, people were standing in line for two hours to place a bet, and they were happy to do so. Uh, they were, and when they got up to the window, if the game had already kicked off, they didn't care. They were going to place whatever the in-game in uh, line was. They just were happy to be able to place money down, have a bet, have a beer, watch the game, cash some tickets if they win. It was kind of like you know, it was kind of like their their Vegas dream had finally come home. Um, it, since then, uh, the lines have gotten a little shorter. People are doing a lot more mobile betting now. You know, the, it's funny how people mature just over the course of three or four weeks in the NFL season. Now they're understanding that, you know, oh, I, I don't want to stand in line for two hours anymore. You know, I'll just place a bet on the mobile app. And um, but it's really there's there hasn't been a better time to be a recreational sports better. So before I let you go, I want to point the listener towards you've written some articles on gambling with an edge, which I've uh, which I've read. Uh, very informative, and I understand there's more to come. So just take us through sort of your partnership or, or how you work together with Gambling with an Edge and put out certain content there. Right. So uh, gamblingwithanedge.com is a subset of Anthony Curtis's uh, Las Vegas Advisor, which is a long-running newsletter. Uh, it's kind of been the de facto uh, source of news for any Vegas tourist for the last 20-plus years. Um, he really does a good job in kind of uh, presenting a kind of an all-inclusive uh, look at Las Vegas, whether from gambling, from uh, dining to entertainment, uh, the whole thing. Uh, and gambling with an edge is kind of a subset geared towards advantage players. Um, it has a podcast of its own, and there's also uh, some blogs that are up there. Um, I started writing for them this summer. And uh, I write under the name Jack Andrews on there. And basically, I'm writing about the sports wagering industry. Um, I'm not on there to teach anyone about sports betting in terms of how to play. I'm not going to give picks. Uh, I'm just writing about the industry, and especially in this age of expansion and proliferation. Uh, it's an exciting time, and this industry is evolving almost week by week. And so I try to put up a blog at least once a week. Uh, taking another angle on uh, some of the news that's come out uh, and from what I've seen in some of the emerging states. Um, I'm also on Twitter, at uh, CapJack, 
2000. Um, I previously used to uh, post under the name Captain Jack, um, but I recently decided that, you know, need to be a little bit more professional. So that's why the transition to Jack Andrews. Um, but on Twitter, I'm still at CapJack2000. Awesome. And is it okay for people to reach out to you on Twitter or through Gambling with an Edge with questions? Absolutely, yes. Uh, each of my blogs, there's a comment section. Go ahead and write some comments. I usually log in there at least a couple times a day to see if, what people have said. Uh, and, of course, Twitter, you know, that, that conversation's ongoing every day, all day. You know, that, that's just a great tool for kind of communicating with people. Awesome. Jack, thank you very much for your time. Very, very informative and certainly on a, a new market with the U.S., so a lot of people are very interested. So I want to thank you again for your time and coming on the podcast. Well, thank you, Jake. This was, uh, this was a pleasure.